0: That's what I'm just trying. I'm just trying to find some space. I am anticipating that Donald Trump leaving office on January 20th is going to open up a lot of space in my brain, in my schedule, in my social media feed.
1: This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. and welcome to season six of Fancy Politics. Oh my goodness, we're so happy that you're here. If you are new here, welcome. We like to say that we host the largest political support group on the internet. Mm -hmm. We are here to help each other and all of you process the news and hopefully just inch closer to a political reality that we can all agree on.
0: We have an amazing community of supporters on Patreon. If you would like to head over to patreon.com and check out The nightly nuance that Beth puts together Monday through Thursday, we're active on Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our incredible merch, or learn more about the Extra Credit Book Club subscription
1: on our website at pantsoupoliticsshow.com. And here we are, Beth. We made it to 2021. Happy New Year. I'm excited to be here, even though it is a difficult time. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to try to be really intentional about how we start the year today. We've both made some political resolutions as we talk through those, some context that we're keeping in mind. December was the deadliest month of the pandemic, and we both have personal experience with the pandemic So if you're a new listener, I'll share that my mother got COVID-19 in September, both my mother and father. My mother has rheumatoid arthritis and a host of related conditions. She spent 15 days hospitalized, three months on supplemental oxygen, and is still doing daily physical therapy to cope with its impacts. I was telling Sarah before we started recording that mom is is not doing well. And we're struggling with how to talk about it because we are so grateful that she's alive. We're so grateful for the care she received. We know our family has been in many ways lucky. My dad's case of COVID was relatively mild, but my dad is struggling to sleep still. And my mom is an enormous amount of pain from COVID related inflammation. And so it's been a very long road for our family. And our family has been blessed in the American landscape because so many people have suffered so much worse than we have.
0: And over the Christmas break, my father was diagnosed with COVID-19. He is still in his quarantine period. Thank God he has so far not needed to go to the hospital or be under any sort of intense care. He seems to have a mild case. Um, I make him send me his pulse ox reading, like every two hours. Um, and so we're staying pretty steady. But um, it was incredibly scary. And I still have a lot of fear surrounding his recovery and exactly what you articulated with your own parents' journey. I just think that we have this narrative that as soon as people are free to move about in the world after having COVID, that their journey is over. Um, And that's just not the case. I was speaking to a relative who said, oh, yeah, I had a mild case and then um, went on to explain how one of her normal daily activities was a grind. And she almost burst into tears trying to do that activity because she was just so worn out. And I thought like, man, and then you didn't have a mild case. Right. So I think that we we sort of detach those two things when really they're related and we need to have so much. Um, grace, and care for people as they continue to deal with COVID days, weeks, months after
1: um, the initial positive test. So COVID always on our minds. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
2: Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt.
1: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that. On Sunday, the House came into new session. Speaker Pelosi was reelected. As we're recording today on Monday, we expect President Trump to hold a rally in Dalton, Georgia. That seems like it's going to be a doozy. Mm -hmm. On Tuesday, as you're hearing this, uh, the Georgia runoffs will be taking place, although 3 million people have already voted in Georgia. Well done, early voters in this runoff election. And it will be interesting to see what the turnout looks like and how those two really crucial Senate races to the balance of power shake out. Wednesday, Congress will certify the election results. We'll talk much more about that in a few minutes. And I don't want to lose sight, even though this is very dark, of the fact that the Trump administration has been very focused in its final months on conducting federal executions. Three people are scheduled to be executed in January before the inauguration. Lisa Marie Montgomery, who we've talked about before, on the 12th, Corey Johnson on the 14th, and Dustin John Higgs on the 15th. And I think that matters to our national consciousness and who we are as a country.
0: So before we deep dive on the congressional update, we're going to talk about Brexit. We wanted to share our political resolutions for 2021 What we learned from 2020 about how we approach the news, how we think about our political landscape and just the reality of being an American in this in this current historical moment, I think for me, one of my big political resolutions as I think back on 2020 and I think about how I want to approach 2021 is I'm trying to slow down. For better or for worse, the impact of the last four years of Donald Trump and the chaos he has created is this just intensity. Um, You know, it's like we were trained to check Twitter and to think the next New York Times update was going to be life or death, crazy, norm busting, historical, all these things. And it's, it's really hard to get out of that cycle. And so I'm really trying hard to slow down because I have the instinct to rush to to get out of it right to get out of the Trump era to get out of the pandemic to just go forward go forward go forward. He's done. He's irrelevant moving on. And I'm trying to both stay focused on um, what's still happening with The Trump presidency and with the pandemic, and also like slow down and not turn from the consequences of those things just because they're hard. Because I think part of what we got trained to do over the last four years is well, you don't have to deal with the difficulty of this because there will be another impossibly difficult thing in thirty seconds, and it's like our attention span has just shrunk so much that I'm really focusing on slowing down and. Diving in. So even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if I want to turn away, even if my brain's telling me, don't worry, another thing's going to come in just a minute, I'm trying to focus on the consequences of Trump as much as I'd like to shut the book on him and move on. Um, Focused on what COVID has revealed about our institutions, even though I desperately want COVID to just be over. I mean, it's sort of the co- the lesson of individual recoveries from COVID is applicable to our wider landscape, right? That is not, it's not over when it's over. That, that, was, that what we've learned and what we will continue to have revealed to us is still relevant. And that's what I'm just trying to build that muscle back up because I feel like it really, <laughs> really fell out of use during the last four years.
1: That relates to where I am. I hear you talking about fighting instincts. Mm. This is what I feel pulled to. How do I overcome that? And one of the things that I am very prone to is wishful thinking. It should be this way, so it will be. Mm. I trust the Supreme Court, for example. I trust our institutions. And I'm glad that I do. I think sometimes if you look at political Twitter, and one thing I've been thinking a lot about is, like, who is that for? But Mm -hmm. when you look at political Twitter, there are sort of the camps of the alarmist and the anti-alarmist. And I I don't want to be either one of those things, but I do probably trend toward anti-alarmist too much. And I especially do that in my life. So when I think about people and their motivations, I put a real gloss on it, sometimes a gloss that's pretty condescending. Well, if they only knew more, they would think this. If they only understood X, Y, Z, then they would come around to my version of things. And so I'm trying to do less wishful thinking and and be more focused, as you were saying, on the consequences of what's happened, on the ramifications of it, on the fallout, on the challenges that we're still combating. In the vein of applying that to the present moment, I've also been thinking a lot about my values. What are my big picture governmental values? And I do really value living in a representative democracy. And so I want to keep that orientation to process and keep myself in the discipline of recognizing that a truly representative government is going to have a lot of people in it who say and do things that I think are outrageous. Mm. Because I trended too much last year, I think, toward these people have no place here Mm. in a lot of different spaces. And I don't want to be that. I I think that there are ideas that have no place here. And I want to work against those ideas. But there, there will always be ideas that I don't like in a truly representative democracy. You and I talk about expanding the number of representatives in the House pretty often. There will be even more extreme versions of ideas in an expanded House, probably more moderates and more extremists, right? Because you just add more people and you get more representative of America, the spectrum will be present. And I want to get right with that. And then the other instinct of mine that I'm fighting against, I think it's so interesting that we both made lists about kind of fighting some of our natural tendencies, is uh, my instinct to critique an idea right away instead of just stepping back and valuing the idea and really asking the best questions I can about ideas. So instead of dismissing out of hand because I think well, the federal government shouldn't be doing this or that would never work or that can't scale or all of the no's that come to mind for me, really just giving space around ideas. Because I think we're at a moment that requires a lot of ideas and and I love ideas. So I want to give myself permission not to go into um, critique mode immediately mm-hmm. and really just be more curious about the solutions that people are offering to some really complicated problems.
0: Well, I think we've seen over the last, you know, four years how quickly ideas become reality. How quickly we went from introducing the idea of universal basic income and the government just sending us checks, which seemed outlandish at the time we started talking about it, to a presidential candidate that advocated that, to checks going out during COVID relief, right? I mean, I just... The pace is so quick, and so I think the idea of space is incredibly important. And That's what I'm just trying. I'm just trying to find some space. I am anticipating that Donald Trump leaving office on January 20th is going to open up a lot of space in my brain, in my schedule, in my social media feed, not just to move on and never think about him, but to deeply think about the problems he created, the problems he exposed, um, the the political realities of how our fellow citizens feel and see and experience the world. And I'm just trying to find some space for that because my, you know, my instinct is this sort of um, pragmatism, much of what you are articulating, like, well, that won't work or that's not relevant. And it's like you see us battling that right now, I think, with the certification process. Like, if it won't become a reality, why is, why, why are we still talking about it? And I think that just giving some breathing room for that, that can't be summed up um, in a tweet or in a headline to make space for conversations, for I don't know, for we haven't figured this out, for this is, you know, my my most difficult space to hold is this is a deeply deeply problematic issue that will not be solved in my lifetime that's i it's hard for me to stay present with problems like that but we have a lot of problems like that and facing those giving space to experience the the fear that surrounds things like climate change, the anxiety surrounding things like public education or college education, especially as the mother of three children. Like, I got to stop rushing past that. And I, in a way, Trump was an excuse to do it. Right. Because there was all, there was always sort of more acute issue with him, him being the acute issue. And so taking His absence, um, at least from the bully pulpit, as an opportunity to say, okay, we cannot constantly be consumed with the urgent and miss the important.
1: So with those principles in mind, we have selected four big stories that we think are deserving of some time and discussion. But before we get into those four stories, we want to share a moment of hope with you, as we always do. And Rachel sent this moment in to share.
2: Hi, Sarah and Beth. I hope y'all are enjoying some much-deserved rest at the end of this crazy year. I wanted to send a commemoration your way, even though the nuanced life has come to a close. I'm a nurse, and I received my first dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine on Monday. It was a brief encounter with the nurse who gave me the injection, and then I was monitored to make sure that I didn't have an allergic reaction. I walked out to my car, and a flood of emotions just hit me all at once in the quiet. I cried tears of gratitude for the scientists who developed the vaccine and for the thousands of volunteers in the trials who took a risk and a leap of faith on behalf of others. I felt gratitude for each person who built and tested the freezers and organized their delivery specifically for this vaccine, the logistical teams that organized the many details and checks along the way, the drivers who carried this precious cargo, and the administrators who dealt with more red tape and paperwork than I will know to organize this whole endeavor with the state. I felt hope that there is light at the end of this tunnel. As divided as we are, so many people came together to make this miracle happen. Nurses have gotten a lot of recognition for their heroism as frontline healthcare workers, but there is a whole village of unsung heroes that made this vaccine happen for us, and I would like to commemorate them. Thank you to each person who directly or indirectly connected the dots between the need for this vaccine and the Band-Aid on my arm. You give me hope that there is light at the end of this long and dark tunnel.
0: For those of you who don't regularly listen to our other podcast, The Nuance Life, we wrapped it up at the end of 2020 and Rachel is commemorating something and that's what we used to do on The Nuance Life. We shared space for commemorations and we're gonna continue to do that and we're gonna create some space in Pansu Politics to commemorate. And this was the perfect opportunity.
1: Next up, we're going to apply our political resolutions to the top stories happening in the United States and around the world.
0: We are special breakfast people here at Pansu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura Beth, we have a new Congress, but before we got this new Congress, the old Congress got real active in their last couple days. It's like they were like, "Oh, the election's over. We have we have jobs. We have like a job that's not only getting reelected. Maybe we should do said job."
1: We have a job and some very hard deadlines staring mm-hmm. us down. So what happened, as too often happens in our congressional leadership now, is the recognition that Some very important programs are going to expire. The federal government is going to run out of money. And so we're going to roll a bunch of things together and try to get them done. So we did get a COVID relief bill, as I'm sure that you know, just to quickly go through what's in that bill, because many of you have asked us, it's a $900 billion package. About a third of it is going to programs that get money and help to individuals and families, stimulus checks, unemployment, rent assistance, SNAP benefits. Um, We also saw an increase to the pandemic emergency unemployment compensation fund. So 11 weeks of $300 a week benefits for people Currently receiving that compensation. This is the fund that helps people whether they qualify for regular unemployment insurance or not. So it's reaching our gig workers. It also expands the program for people who cannot work because of the pandemic, whether it's because of illness or family illness or quarantining or because schools are closed. So a good check in with reality from Congress in terms of this program. The Relief package also extends eviction protection to January 31st. I have a feeling we're going to need to see more work done on that by our new Congress in pretty short order. And also helpful to some families, you can roll over unused money in a flexible spending account instead of losing it. About another third of it is going to go to small business aid, most of which will fund the paycheck protection program. And the remaining third is pretty miscellaneous some money for schools, some money for vaccine distribution, shoring up the national strategic stockpile of PPE. There's money for a variety of public health agencies, including money for substance abuse and mental health treatment and to support early childhood programs. So that relief package merged with government spending. Through 2021, September 2021. And that $1.4 trillion package to fund the government is where you see a lot of the items that people talked about casually as unrelated to COVID relief. Well, of course they are because we have a whole government to take care of in addition to doing COVID relief. So, some highlights from the spending package. There's a $5 billion increase in base defense funding and a $20 billion increase in non defense funding. And those increases are over the last fiscal year. We have $3.1 billion in this package for crises, um, agency operations impacted by COVID 19, particularly. And then we have $2.35 billion for wildfire suppression activities. There's new money for medical research associated with the 21st Century Cures Act and a $1.9 billion program to ensure the integrity of other government initiatives. So I think this is a pretty good package as as things go together. But Congress finally got some money out the door with the clock urgently um, ticking on them.
0: We also got the passage of the National Defense Authorization Act, which Trump then vetoed But then both the House and the Senate, by pretty overwhelming majorities, overrode his veto. So for those of you who don't remember, the NDAA is a $741 billion bill that authorizes national defense programming. And Trump was angry that it didn't bring in the repeal of a law governing social media companies that eliminates their liabilities for information posted on their platform. He wanted them to be liable for things that they said on their platform, which would be. Uh, quite chilling. I would imagine on social media platforms, but he wanted them to do to wrap in the removal of that liability to military spending. Congress pretty resoundingly said, "No, we're not going to do that." Um, But what it does do now that it's been now that it's officially law is puts lots of money um, into trying to outposture China. Money for submarines and other infrastructure in the Pacifics. It has a cybersecurity overhaul, so it's not just regular funding, it seems to be acknowledging that we have some defense priorities that desperately need attention, particularly when it comes to China and cybersecurity.
1: So that's what our old Congress did. We have a new Congress now. The new members have been seated. The speaker has been elected. We have a record number of women serving in the House of Representatives, which is good news.
0: I do want to say really quickly before we move on from the the election of Nancy Pelosi, I thought it was interesting and I wanted to hear your take on this, that I think a lot of press and attention from Twitterverse goes to the conflict um, between the squad, AOC, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Corey Bush is now a member of the squad, according to a Twitter post, um, and Ilian Omar, and of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and their uh, conflicts with Speaker Pelosi. But what I thought was interesting is that all of them voted for her. And it was the sort of moderate camp Um, Abigail Spanberger, Elise Slotnick, who voted present for the election of Speaker Pelosi. What were your thoughts on that?
1: Well, those moderates have just gotten through some very tough races where they were constantly tied to Nancy Pelosi. Mm. And I can imagine that there is some cover in voting present for them. I think that's too bad, but I get it. And I can imagine that being done sort of with Speaker Pelosi's blessings, overall, I think the entire Democratic caucus probably just had to realize that stability is needed right now. Mm -hmm. And I would frankly love to see a new Speaker of the House, but I get why that shakeup in this particular moment would be very ill-advised. And I just think that's how she ended up getting everybody on board, even though You have really disparate opinions. She's done a good job giving those young progressive members of Congress nice committee assignments, too. Mm -hmm. I think she has tried to manage a diverse group of ideas within the caucus. That was my take. What did you think?
0: Well, and I think it's not just stability, but it's that you have this – Teeny, tiny majority, the smallest majority that we've had in several decades, especially once uh, President-elect Biden plucked a few more members for cabinet positions, um, which I think was the right call. And I'm glad that they decided to do that because I think that the cabinet positions, especially the really important ones like the Department of the Interior, have more impact over the long haul than the two years of this Congress. But, yeah, I think it was an acknowledgement. that, you know, the conflict that I think plays out so often between the squad and Nancy Pelosi is is created in the media more than it is a reality inside the House of Representatives. Um, I also think, you know, there's been a lot of analysis that could this be one of the most active Congresses? Because of the small majority, we don't know what's going to happen in Georgia um, today as this episode comes out with the special election, but you know, I think these close, these close margins could lead to a lot of compromise, could lead to a lot of um, moderate legislation getting through, especially with Joe Biden as president. I'm, I'm you know, and it's it's not the narrative I've had in my head for a long time. And this gets to our political resolutions. Like, where do I really need to question the narrative? I had that, which is you get a lot done by having a lot, a big Democratic majority. Um, But I think what you see with the assertion, even with the COVID relief bill of these moderates, um, bipartisan moderates coming together and saying, no, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to really press press the hand of leadership and make this happen. Um, Maybe these this moderate power play. Be it, you know, Abigail Spenberger voting present or. The COVID relief bill, like, I, I don't know, maybe I do need to question some of my assumptions about what actually get things gets things done in our current political environment.
1: And it gets things done very unhappily, mm-hmm. right? The COVID relief bill is the absolute least Congress could have done. Yep. The absolute least at the absolute last minute. But it did get something done. They broke a log jam. And in some ways, inching along like that with Some people thinking it was too much money and some people thinking it's not enough. And I hate that provision and you hate this one is part of the legislative process. Yeah. And so if you could get the logjam broken and things at least moving a little bit, I think that would be much better than all these symbolic victories that have characterized the McConnell era for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that really relates to the certification of the election results, which is coming up on Wednesday. So. Before we get too much into the analysis, let's just say this is going to happen at one o'clock in the House chamber on Wednesday in a joint session of Congress. The vice president uh, will preside over the session. He will the, – the role of Congress – is actually to open envelopes and say, like, is this Connecticut's real certification? Awesome. Moving on. That's what this process is supposed to be. Constitutionally, it is not investigative Mm -hmm. in any way. But there will be objections, as we all know. What I think is interesting about this, I have a lot of words about this, but to to pick up where we just left off, you know, Senator McConnell has been such a protector of Senate Republicans by preventing them from taking votes. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And now, finally, you have a group of Republicans saying, no, we're going to take this vote. Mm -hmm. I can't believe they put their chips in on taking this vote. This is the one they're going to challenge him on. I hope that the good that can come from this just spectacular mistake is that they'll take more votes in general and that maybe Mitch McConnell won't be as protective of some of his members anymore and some of these bills that are hard that get through the house on a on a bipartisan basis he'll make people take the vote in the senate i would like to see the senate taking more votes
0: my instinct and i don't know if my instinct is supporting my new political resolutions or not is that As much as I want this to be some sort of rendering inside the Republican Party, I don't think that's the reality. I think Mitch McConnell protects Senate Republicans because Senate Republicans create Mitch McConnell's power. Majority. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. And so whatever he can do to continue to protect them, it's not really about them. It's about him. And so he'll continue to do it. This does disrupt a little bit of the narrative I've carried for so long, which is they— the, you know, the sort of the Republican leadership, Republican politicians inside Congress do whatever it takes um, to maintain that power. And I expect to continue to see that. But this has hurt them. This has and will continue to hurt them and us. A disruption of the certification process not only is um, an attack on federalism, which is what I think you see articulated by Liz Cheney and Paul Ryan and Tom Cotton and Ben Sass and Mitt Romney this idea that, like, no, that's not what we do. We empower states, and the states are empowered to elect the president, and it is not Congress's job to interfere in the process. And so when you see the sort of um this is an attack on our democracy, um, I think that's what that's what that's what people mean, right? Is that we we have a process set up inside the Constitution that vests power inside the states. And the idea that Congress will come and save the day, disrupt the process, question the fraud, whatever it is, like that's just not how we are set up, and so I think that that is why it's damaging to us. Why is it damaging to the Republican Party is you are seeing this sort of a break in the line, which listen, that's usually Democrats things that's what we do, right? We fight um, and so it is interesting and disrupting to my narrative to a certain extent to see this this play out so publicly um, and I do think it will have consequence um and i think some of that we might not ever see or know publicly um i think you will see it behind the scenes um sort of the the who's going to run who are we going to spend money on and i'm not i'm not sure how much we'll ever know about the real repercussions for this and I'm not sure like is Ben Sass really as angry as he sounds on Facebook, or was that performative like is he like if if questioning Mitch McConnell was really like if this was a true rift, if this was a true cancer spreading throughout the Republican party, you would see consequences for them not doing what he's begged them not to do, which is to question the certification process as far as committee placements. Or something along those lines, right,, and our
1: contributions, I, how yeah, money gets so i'm not I, I'm not
0: sure we're gonna see that, and to me, like it well, if there's no consequence as far as political consequences inside the party, then what does it really mean, and I you know, and I think the this the answer is we don't know yet, we don't know yet, and we won't know after Wednesday either, um, we're gonna have to see a little bit more of this play out, and I think. The consequences, this is like what I'm talking about, like I'm ready to close the book on Trump, but we cannot close the book on Trump inside the Republican Party for many, 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 many more months, if not years. Like he's going to continue to do what he can um, and hold on to that power and people are going to push back. And I just don't think we know what that means yet. I really don't think we know. I don't think it's as open and closed as it's the party of trump we're done that's it like it just cannot mean that cannot be a, the the conclusion um as his term comes to an end if he'd won a second term then yeah but he didn't um i know he does not believe that and i know we're going to get to this recording with him and the georgia secretary of state in a minute uh which made it abundantly clear to me that he actually thinks he won which he did not um but i told my husband i said i i Know that Donald Trump lies, but so often he believes his lies, and so it is perceived as authenticity. And the idea that this gallery of Ivy League imitators like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz can step up and maintain that authenticity with his base, certification questioning or not, I think is just ludicrous. I don't think it's going to read the same way. I know they're all tiptoeing not to make those people mad, but you can maybe prevent from pissing them off, but you cannot lead them in the way that he has led them because you are not him. But I don't know. I don't know what that means yet. You know, like, I don't know how that's going to play out.
1: I don't know what Donald Trump believes. There are times when I agree with you. I think he really believes he won the election. But I'm becoming more cynical about it and thinking that maybe he just thinks it doesn't matter. Maybe his animating belief is that there is only public perception, and he can always create the public perception. Even the Republicans who are opposing these objections to certification are issuing statements, not all of them, but many of them saying things like, we share the concerns of millions of Americans about this electoral process. The concerns have been created. The concerns Mm -hmm. have been manufactured. Were there errors? Always. Do you think that we've ever had an election where zero people voted in a way that shouldn't have counted or should have and didn't? No. We've Mm -hmm. never had a perfect election. We don't have a perfect census. We don't have a perfect process of anything that involves as many people as live here. That's okay. What do you think? This is the question that I have for just among ourselves as citizens, for people who are convinced that something went so wrong this time, I want to know what you think went so wrong that was different than previous elections. Mm -hmm. That is what I fail to see any evidence of. Should we always be striving for a cleaner process? Yes, and we are. And you can see ways in which this election was an improvement over 2016. And that's what we want to keep working on. If I were a Pennsylvania state legislator, Believe I would come back to work saying, you know what, we need a uniform system across the state about curing ballots. Let's write that into law and do it. We learned something. This is the remedy for it. Let's move forward. But that's so different from disenfranchising everyone. My main point is people have these concerns because they've been told to have these concerns. Mm -hmm. And then their legislators continue to fuel them by acknowledging them as legitimate and as legitimate reasons to oppose actually getting to the finish line on this election. And so I kind of listened to that call between Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State and just heard someone for whom the reality doesn't matter at all. It's just how much can I exert pressure to create the reality that I want in the public eye? And as long as the public is with me, enough of the public, then enough of the legislators will be.
0: Yes, but he didn't know the public was going to hear that call. That's what leads me to believe he actually thinks these things. He thought he was just talking to Brad Raffensperger. And to me, what's makes Brad Raffensperger such a fascinating character and speaks to what you were just saying is he knows he did the process correctly. He knows he paid attention to the concerns from last time and improved them and made them better. Like you can feel the righteousness of his effort to improve the process every time he talks, right? Like I think that you you can feel his sort of the wind at his back as far as like, oh, no, I have a paper ballot for everything. I know that we did it correctly. I know my data is correct. Like, you can just feel that with him. I think it was so brilliant that he recorded this call because they've thrown him under the bus so many times. And he was like, oh, no, not again, friend. I'm going to have the receipts. But like, to me, the fact that he didn't know that I I can't imagine why Donald Trump does not assume he's being recorded, how many times he's gotten Bitten by a recording, but, like, that goes to it, right? Like, that, you know, I think that he he just lives in that reality. And so he couldn't even think, like, well, what if they're recording? Because he's gonna go, he's gonna go on a rally stage and say the same thing, you know.
1: Well, that's where I think there's authenticity. I don't know that there's a public and a private Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't, I don't think know there that is. he has a, a a genuine connection with anyone where he would like put his guard down and say, you know, really, this is kind of all crap, but I'm doing my best. I mean, maybe he would. I don't know. And sometimes when I get wrapped up in this question, I think, what am I looking for? Some kind of moral window into this person. What difference does it make? What I think is so interesting again for us as citizens is that immediately that tape has been out 24 hours as we sit down to record, and immediately the camps became worst thing ever impeach him again
0: mm-hmm.
1: versus it was so disgusting of Brad Raffensberger to record that call. And my question on the Impeach him Again" crowd is. Do you really think that's what the United States needs in this particular moment? And my question, even though I agree that it breached an ethical line for sure. And my question for that it was so disgusting to record that crowd is what – could this president do that would, in your mind, merit any form of accountability? Mm -hmm. I just want to hear that. And I want to ask that earnestly, because at some point, what are we talking about? I don't know what we're talking about anymore, other than you're with him or against him.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's what's happening within the Republican Party. You're either with him or against him.
1: And Except they want to thread the needle. So many of them want to say, <laughs> yeah. I'm with him, but I don't have this power. And, and fine, I'll take it. Listen, I loved, Jonah Goldberg has a fantastic piece about hypocrisy and how it's not the thing that we make it out to be because wouldn't we rather people be right some of the time than not ever? And yeah. I am 100% there. I'm not going to lambast people over this. I would rather you be right this time than never. Yeah. But it is interesting to me that they continue to want to find that space.
0: Well, this is a good transition to the other story that we want to talk about in that the election continues to be the only thing that he is focused on when he is still president and we're trying to distribute vaccines in one of the largest undertakings in our country's history. And he seems to have no interest in doing this well completely at all. So the goal was to have 20 million Americans receiving the first dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine by the end of 2020. Well, we're now fully into 2021 and only 4 million people in the U.S. have received at least one coronavirus vaccine dose, according to the CDC. There seems to be several issues at the center of this. Okay, the first is a lag in reporting. It just takes a while to get the numbers, you know, from every distribution site across the United States into the CDC system so that we know how many doses have gone out understandable. The biggest issue, as far as I can tell, um, is that we try to do this over Christmas. (laughs) And between the holiday break and closures and shorter hours and winter weather, um, there were just a lot of logistical roadblocks to getting the vaccine and that much of the vaccine out into the American populace. I mean, of course, the 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 center of all of these issues is that there continues to be no federal guidance. I mean, he even, the president even tweeted at one point, like, we got them to you, then it's up to you guys. Well, now we're hoisting this massive distribution on hospitals and health local healthcare officials, health departments that are already already completely overworked, completely at their limit, with in the middle of a surge. So they're already. Really, really stretched thin, if not already broken, because of increased hospitalizations, because of increased deaths across the country. And then we're saying, oh, can you take this on as well? And they don't have the resources or the capacity to then do this really, really difficult vaccine distribution. And I think that. You know, I avoided so many of these stories, and I think I felt this from many of my friends. Just this idea of like, I cannot, I cannot. I am, I am putting so much hope on the vaccine and the vaccine distribution to read stories, and I think some of them were um, a little bit alarmist about it's not happening, or they're, ex- God forbid, they're actually expiring, was really really difficult and it's still difficult to think about but i i do not think that this is the permanent state of affairs that is the hope i can give if we're practicing a discipline of hope um then that is the hope that that i can give i think that this this will not be the the perpetual state of vaccine distribution in the united states um as with everything with the current administration in charge of a federal response um be it testing tracing and now vaccine distribution. um, It's not going well, but that will that will not continue past January 20th. I I think that once the Biden administration um, is in charge and we have a federal government that believes in the federal government and the ability of the federal government to solve problems and
1: do things well, hopefully this will change. I think this is going to be a blip in the historic record. Mm. I really do. I almost want to affirm your instinct to avoid these stories because this is a historic undertaking. As you said, in the most difficult, I mean, the people who are having to learn to give these vaccines under such difficult logistical circumstances, think of it, administering a two dose vaccine from different brands that have to be kept at various levels of hella cold. Mm -hmm. to the entire population prioritized under various rubrics of public health philosophy and ethics would be difficult if people weren't sick. This would be hard in a world where hospitals were not overburdened with this rate of transition. This would be hard if we had the most competent president in U.S. history who was directing all of his attention at it. This is hard, and there's got to be some learning, and I just think we're in the learning curve of it. You know, I know that when that story came out about how we might be able to get more doses out of the amounts of vaccine that we have, it was alarming and concerning for people. That's just learning, though. That's how it happens. Mm -hmm. We saw it with the mask guidance. We've seen it all the way through this process. And we have to find a way, I think, to maintain not only that hope, but some amount of of at least good faith, if not trust, in a process that allows for trial and error and experimentation and some outright failures and some incompetence because we're humans trying to make this happen. And I still feel every time I see a picture of anybody receiving a vaccine, I think we have come so far. Yeah. We have so far to go, but we have come so far so fast. Just be patient. Just hang in here.
0: Well, you know what I keep thinking about? That phrase people throw around when you've had a baby about weight gain, nine months on, nine months off. Now, don't email me. I'm not, I'm not supporting or condoning that phrase. I'm just, it just feels like with COVID, like it took a while to get here. It's going to take a while to get out. It's not going to be instantaneous under any stretch of the imagination. Like we didn't you know if we've learned anything from that this second surge is like it this is a this is a a perpetual wave right that we're just like we get through one wave and another's coming in it and i think the recovery is going to be the same way we're going to have dips and and arches in this this vaccine distribution and just coming out of it all at all like it's not going to be one and done the Vaccine itself isn't one done, you got to get two dang doses. And I think that we just have to give ourselves grace and find some space not to be rocked by every well, maybe you only need a half a dose. Well, maybe you can do a, one dose from one vaccine and another from another, or maybe you could like maybe. Yeah, there's lots of maybes, and there's going to continue to be lots of maybes when it comes to COVID 19.
1: And there are always maybes in medical treatment, always. Mm-hmm. I bought an $86 bottle of eardrops, not having any understanding of what was in that bottle whatsoever, because my doctors told me it might help a problem I was having, Mm -hmm. because that's a lot of what a lot of things are, you know? And, and I trust them with the thing that I am shooting into this area. That's real close to my brain. Mm -hmm. And so I am going to go along with this process to the best of my ability. Okay. Two more quick things that we need to cover today. As you probably heard, Russian hackers have intruded into more than 250 federal agencies and corporations. <sighs> now, electrical grids, labs, it's, it's a lot. I do want to bring your attention to a really good piece that I'll link in the show notes about how hacking is also a spectrum. It is not mm-hmm. you were hacked or not. Yeah. There are lots of questions along the way. Could you see information? Could you control information? Could you change information? And we don't know a lot about this. And this is something that it's going to take us a while to unravel too. We know that Russia got in through network management software made by a company called SolarWinds. And what I think is important to examine about this is that the story of SolarWinds is in many ways the story of American business right now. Because you have this management firm with hundreds of thousands of customers and pretty poor security practices and enormous profit margins and an unwillingness to invest those profit margins in fixing problems that its employees were telling them about. Some people on their way out the door telling SolarWinds, we are vulnerable here. And so... Through SolarWinds, again, a company with poor security practices, Wired reported, for example, that one of their update servers used the password SolarWinds123. Okay, so we're not doing our (sighs) best here, but hackers were able to view... Some of the code we know, at least, underlying Microsoft software, but not change it. So that's one piece of this puzzle. We don't know what happened at Treasury, State, Commerce, Energy, parts of the Pentagon. We know that they got in to some degree, but we don't know how far. We also know that our government agencies responsible for cyber defense did not detect this breach. A private cybersecurity company called FireEye detected it. If FireEye had not come forward, we might not know today. That this had been happening. We know that this has been going on for at least nine months, and FireEye discovered it because an employee got an alert that someone logged into the company's virtual network using that person's credentials from a new device. Mm -hmm. The kind of alert that I don't know about y'all, but depending on the day, I might ignore. Mm -hmm. So, again, there's this complicated relationship. This is COVID too, between systems and individuals. And I've been thinking about this story, Sarah, and how I almost think my next question is how can we have a new conversation about technology in our country? And I think a framework that would be useful is if we talked about technology the way we talk about magic in children's literature. Go with me for a second. <laughs> Anytime you read a book or watch a movie about magic, there is this sense that the person who is magical has this incredible power that they will never fully understand. So they must learn to control it. That's a really different orientation than you are a user of technology. Mm. And I really think that if we all started recognizing that we have in our hands, on our keyboards, in our workplaces, this incredible power that we don't understand how it works at all, but we must learn to control it, that would be very helpful to cybersecurity. Because even really good systems, you must have those individuals. We know that this hacking was the work of humans, not a computer program. And those humans made decisions like, let's use servers inside the United States because FBI, CIA, law enforcement cannot spy on servers inside the United States the the way they can on servers throughout the world. So this dance between human and technology individual and group, systems versus decision-making. I just think we might need a new metaphor to help us all wrap our brains around that.
0: Well, I wish I could say that I felt the way about this story, the way you felt about the vaccine distribution story, which is that it's a historical blip. I do not feel that way. No, I agree. I love your magic analogy. I'm thinking a lot about the Revolutionary War and how we talk about that as the moment um, war shifted. The Americans took a new tactic, right? Like, we didn't just line up in straight lines and shoot each other and see what happened. Like, we had to take—we were smaller, um, and so we had to take a different tactic. We had to break the rules um, of warfare and how that—that didn't just— that wasn't it. Like we didn't do that the first time and win the Revolutionary War. Right. We didn't ambush them from the woods. And then Britain was like, well, it's done. Um, we still lost a lot of battles. It still took a lot of um, good leadership and historical opportunities and luck um, to win the Revolutionary War and to continue to succeed in this this new environment inside warfare. And I think that's, I always wonder, like, did they know? Like, what was it like to live through that? Like, did they see immediately like, oh, the rules of the game have changed. And so we need to change accordingly. Or did they continue to, I mean, I think we know they continue to double down on the old approach. Let's just bring over more and more soldiers to line up. That's what it feels like to me. It feels like we're, we're living through a really historical shift and the way that, cyber security or cyber warfare whatever you know language you want to use is being used and Russia is smaller than us and has fewer resources than we do and so they have to take different tactics and I I do like the spectrum idea like cuz i think you hear they hacked it and you think they have control over everything and i do think it's a really important like to give the space to like no that's not what that means so let's just take a breath and realize we don't actually know but the the macro view to me is like this is this has changed. Things are changing, and we cannot continue to double down on the belief that things will remain the same. And I hope and believe that there are people inside the government that realize that, and we should demand that. Right that 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 this that cyber warfare has changed, and cybersecurity particularly our cybersecurity needs to stop sort of wishing and praying that things will continue on or that they'll go back to the way they used to and adapt accordingly. And I think like that, that takes that interplay between the individual and the system and leadership, real leadership on this.
1: I think that that's part of why I want a new metaphor because another thing that occurs to me as I read this story is i this is a place where we need more horizontal thinking, not just vertical thinking. Mm -hmm. It. It sounds like, and look, I don't know. I'm not in the Defense Department. It sounds like cybersecurity is is still being treated as a vertical. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see someone like Pete Buttigieg in his role as Secretary of Transportation, assuming he's confirmed, talking about cybersecurity as just part of protecting our infrastructure. Yeah, And here's how we do it across all these spaces. Because we don't know why Russia did this hack. And maybe the answer is because Russia just does things to show that it can. I mean, that does seem to be a part of yep. Russia's animating philosophy. So that might be good enough. But there, are, there could be business objectives. There could be governmental objectives. I mean, if it's all treated as like cyber defense from a U.S. national security perspective, what are we missing? And what are we missing in all the people who are non-military and not part of FireEye and Microsoft who have to be part of this effort? Because we create all these vulnerabilities out here, the way we're harnessing all this power without any control. And and we each create all these vulnerabilities on a massive scale. If nothing comes of this other than an enormous amount of cost, it is an enormous amount of cost that's going to be created here. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, an enormous amount of cost seems like a good transition to our last big story, which we're going to jump across the pond. We're going to go to Britain because four years after this journey began, Brexit is complete. They signed a trade deal, Britain and the European Union, at the end of the year. Uh, Again, coming right down to the wire, this seems to be a, a theme to follow, preventing a no Brexit hard Brexit. Um, They reached a deal. I think part of the reason, it wasn't just the deadline, but we saw a really, really nasty taste of what a no-deal exit would look like Um, right before they signed this deal. France closed its borders with the UK to prevent the spread of that new contagious coronavirus variant, and you had trucks upon trucks upon trucks just stuck, lined up, along the roadside of the border, especially around Dover. And I think that that visual like got everybody's attention. What Whoever was holding back all these people that rejected poor Theresa May's trade deal after trade deal after trade deal got on board uh, pretty quickly, considering how long they've been batting around these trade deals for ye- literal years um, and without a lot of detail. So let's walk through a little bit of what this trade deal contains. So it's a tariff free deal. Um, So there will continue to be zero tariffs. That's a big relief to lots of businesses inside the United Kingdom and the European Union. So they'll continue that. There are border checks that are about to become a reality. And border checks mean delays. And I think one of the big problems is that so many of these small businesses inside the United Kingdom um, aren't prepared, haven't thought through what this reality means because they've been dealing with COVID. Um, And so... The government seems to be preparing people like we are this is going to be an issue and we're just going to have to continue to deal with it. Now, one of the big concessions that the U.K. made inside this trade deal is with regards to fishing. Two thirds of the fish in the U.K. waters in five and a half years compared with just one half currently um, will be able to belong to the U.K. So that's who will be able to catch those fish. It's really interesting. Like this fishing debate has been huge and important, even though it's kind of a tiny piece of their economy. Um, it seems like they finally were like, okay, we're done being held hostage by the fishing industry a little bit. Um, there's a, It's a lot less clear with regards to the service industry. And the in the service industry in the UK, that's your retail, fi- particularly the financial sector, the public sector, um, business administration, leisure, cultural activities. That's a huge component of their economy. It's 80% of the total UK economic output. And there's not a lot of details inside this trade deal about what this means for the services economy. That's Teresa May made a point of like saying, hey, you guys, this is this is less than I was giving you. Um and y'all are passing it, no big deal. I, I think it really was just to prevent the hard um exit or no no exit, I guess is the case will be. So they've got a deal. I think what this really means, you know, it's easy to say, well, Brexit is done. But one of the best analysis I read about what what this Brexit trade deal means and what the Brexit finally coming to pass means is just there there's just gonna continue to be negotiation like um if sovereignty is more important to you than anything else, then um I would assume that that you feel better that that Britain has more established sovereignty, but you know. People making trips to the U- to the European Union lasting longer than nine days, like they're they are going to have to secure a visa. Um, Brits heading to the continent for any length of time, they're going to have to get their passport sta- stamped. Like there's real economic impact beyond just the services industry, beyond just travel. I mean, with all these border checks and that's just going to continue to be negotiated and negotiated and negotiated. So you might have greater sovereignty, but the economic impact this this relationship with the European Union is less defined and therefore just going to have to be constantly evolving. And I you know, I think that that will come at a cost for the United Kingdom and Uh, Again, I think that's back to our political resolutions, like we're just going to have to give space to that. I think Brexit is another story that's been exhausting us for years upon years and we're ready to just like close the book on it and move on. But really what Brexit means is that this relationship between Britain and the European Union is evolving and it's going to continue to evolve and it's going to continue to require negotiation and there are going to be nasty consequences that nobody anticipated and perhaps positive consequences that are going to continue to play out. But that's the story as much as we want it to be over is really just beginning.
1: And it's an important model again for us as citizens Because when you're having conversations with people who feel strongly about anti-globalization or about having products made in the United States or any number of things that are all legitimate things to feel, the next question has to be, what are we willing to pay for that? Mm -hmm. It's fine. But that's the question always. What are we willing to pay for it? Maybe you are willing to pay more money to have your products made in the United States. I think that's awesome. I'm willing to. I'm mm-hmm. I'm happy to have that conversation. Um, if you hate Walmart, great. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how many people are employed by Walmart and what those people are going to do if we can't have a business model like that in the United States anymore. Let's talk about how many people in the United States have jobs because of really cheap goods. Yeah. Um, and what are we willing to pay for those goods? And what are we willing to pay to resituate our fellow citizens? in work that provides them with a living wage and meaningful things to do in an economy that's more insulated. That conversation is not going anywhere in America, and it's not being had realistically right now. And again, I'm not trying to dissuade people of those viewpoints. I think there are some things that we should pay more for. I think our food is at the top of that list, but let's discuss it and let's let's get to what's underneath the sentiment. And that to me is the the lesson of Brexit, because if you go back to is this just a decision about sovereignty? Sure, at the top line, mm-hmm. but the stuff that has really mattered has very little to do with sovereignty and much more to do with what you're willing to pay for.
0: Well, and I think to to sum up our overall conversations about our you know political resolutions and how we're thinking about these things, I just think it's a, a push to go deeper, that a status update is not a political identity. Um, Even a party identification is not a political identity because a political identity contains values and those always go deeper and are more complicated and the consequences are longer lasting or just sometimes impossible to delineate. And that's hard. And that's not something that can be fought in the latest trending topic on Twitter, right? Like it's always, even with something as... um, polarizing and chaotic and seemingly uh, simple to summarize as Donald Trump, some of his actions in his administration, like it's always going to go deeper and going to have far reaching consequences. And it's just not something we can ever close the book on and move on. And I think that's hard coming off 2020 because I have a very desperate urge to like close the book and move on. And I think that's what we want to do when we post a status update. Right. Or we we make a pronunciation about, you know, sovereignty or the latest cultural controversy or, you know, whatever the case may be. Like we want to be done with it. Like I've made my point. I've said my piece. This is it. I'm on the record. Moving on. And I think what we're both trying to articulate with our political real is that like our political resolutions is that instinct is strong and it is not serving us.
1: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement, Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
0: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both.
1: If you are new to Pantsuit Politics, we always end our show continuing that theme that we are more than a political identity by discussing what's on our minds outside of politics. And since we are in a fresh new year, we thought we would share today our words of the year.
0: Well, I've shared my words several times already before 2020 was even over because I was so excited about it. But my word for 2021 is gentle. It came to me, I don't even remember where I heard it, but somebody was using that word And I thought, that's it. Like, I knew it instantly. That doesn't always happen to me. Sometimes I kind of have to um, fuss and fret a bit to find my word. But it came to me. I felt it in every core, like gentle. Yes, I want to be gentle with myself. I want to be gentle with those I love and those around me. I think we all need a great dose of gentleness um, coming off of 2020. And so for me that, you know, especially right now in the new year, I I got a mad instinct for New Year hustle, like, how many challenges can I sign up for? How many goals can I set? And I'm just really trying to take a breath. Um, I'm reading Kristen Neff's self-compassion and just trying to um think about like what is the gentle choice here? Like, is the gentle choice to to rush through this book just because I want to finish the number? of my reading challenge is the gentle choice binging this TV show just so I can say I've done it is the gentle choice pushing through what I know is an exhausting path just just what like I don't even know what the just is for just so I can just so I did just so I can say I did and so you know gentle for me is is taking a breath thinking about like responding instead of reacting, thinking about what will be energy giving and life giving spiritually, physically, emotionally, psychologically in this moment as opposed to just following that that instinct I have to like just, 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 should, 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 just, just, just.
1: I love that. I should say this practice uh, originated with Allie Edwards, who is one of our executive producers. and She has lots of resources supportive of this practice. If and she has the you. coolest
0: journal you can do for your word, too.
1: My word of the year this year is present. It's a low bar that I've set for myself in some <laughs> ways. And in other ways, the highest bar. <laughs> I just want to be less distracted. And yeah. that's come up for me in so many ways, narrowing down my professional work To focusing in on pantsuit politics, narrowing in some of my activities and the way that I spend my time, really just coming closer and closer to these are the things that I have in my life. I'm going to show up very fully for those things when my kids are talking to me, not half listening, Mm. you know. When I'm responding to them, actually using words instead of just mm mm-hmm. I am mainlining Dr. Becky on Instagram so- because she helps me so much think about what my role is in my presence with my kids, not just that I'm here and I'm really here and I'm engaged, but also thinking about, okay, now that I'm here and I'm engaged, what is the point of this connection? What is my role in this connection? And focusing in on my parenting is one of those things that, that the intention of presence is driving me toward. So present, I just want to, I want to really be where I am this year. Thank you for being present with us today during this episode. Thank you for being here as part of the Pansy Politics community. Again, if you're new, we hope that you will find lots of places that you feel really comfortable meeting the wonderful people who listen to this podcast and think through the issues with us. We will be back in your ears on Friday to discuss the results of the Georgia Senate races and how things unfolded in Congress on Wednesday and whatever else transpires between now and then. Have the best week available to you. Pantsy Politics is produced by
0: Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Dante Lima is the composer
1: and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers,
2: David McWilliams,
0: Allie Edwards,
1: Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph,
2: Barry Kaufman, <laughs> Jeremy Sequoia,
1: Lori Lodow, Emily Neesley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff,
2: Danny Osmond,
1: Molly Kors, Julie
2: Haller, Jared Minson,
1: Marnie Johansson, Tawny Peterson, Sherry Blim, Tiffany Hasler, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Linda Daniel, Joshua Allen, and Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit
0: Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics.
1: You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.